If you were walking in the first century through Corinth or Philippi or Ephesus and someone came up to you and said, what religion are you? Well, if you were a Christian, you could say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Or maybe if you were saved immediately after Pentecost, you could say, I'm a follower of the way. But you would, it'd be pretty simple. I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm a follower of the way. But now, 2,000 years have passed. And if someone were to ask you in your place of employment, in your school, over the fence, what religion are you? You might say, well, I'm a Christian. And then there would be a follow-up question to that. They'd probably say something like, well, what kind of Christian are you? And in the visible church, there would be many answers to that. One person might say, I'm Catholic. I'm Orthodox. I'm Anglican. Another might say, I'm Baptist, Presbyterian, Charismatic, Pentecostal, Wesleyan, or I'm a Harvestite. So you would identify yourself as a Christian, but then they'd want to know what denomination or association or stripe or type of Christian you are. And that's because over the past 2,000 years, for various reasons, there have been divisions, there have been separations, there have been the formation of new associations or denominations of churches And perhaps you've noticed this and thought to yourself, I wonder what God thinks about his church and all the different denominations and all the different associations and all the schisms and reformations and division that's taken place over the years. After all, Jesus did pray that his church would be one in his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. What what does God think? about the fact that there are so many different kinds of Christians in the world today. Historically, there have been several things that have taken place to give rise to these various divisions in the visible church, the church as it manifests itself in culture. Now, some of these divisions have been as a result of bad things happening. Heresy was preached, confrontation ensued, the heretic didn't repent, and there was division or fragmentation in a a church or a, a collection of churches. Other times, denominations rose because of geography. So prior to the internet, prior to global communication, there may be a group of Christians in a certain country, and they formed an association, a denomination, a network, and really had no communication with a group of Christians in another country, and they formed a different group, and it wasn't in opposition to the other. It's just they didn't, they didn't know each other. And so some denominations rose up just because of geography. Some rose up because of linguistic differences. Most of you are probably familiar with the great schism through which the Catholic Church fragmented into the Eastern Church, known as the Orthodox Church, and the Western Church, known as the Roman Catholic Church. About 500 years ago, we had the Protestant Reformation, and out of that, the Lutherans and the Reformed churches and the Anabaptists and all these different groups, the Protestants rose up. So there's many, many reasons why there have been these splits or formations of new groups. And while much of that has been bad because of heresy, false teaching, schism, these sorts of things, in actual fact, Some of this fragmentation division has been very, very good. And that may be 
surprising for you to hear. But not only has this division at times served to cut heresy out of the church, much like one might cut a diseased tumor out of a healthy body to preserve the body, and it's painful and there's a recovery time for that. Or to minister to a particular group of people in a region with no ecclesial presence. Sometimes division among the visible members of the church have served, has served to hinder the gospel, but other times it has served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the subject that we're going to examine in part in our study of Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through chapter 16, verse 5. And I've entitled my message, We Won't Always Agree. Now let's face it, even in the, even in the, the, the modern world, let's just take our little city here. We're not the only church in town. And it's not like the best kept secret in town that when I planted this church 20 some odd years ago, I didn't plant this church because I didn't think there were any other Christians in town. But I had a particular vision for a particular community in a particular way that I believe was fueled by the work of God in my life to plant this church. And that does not mean that all the other churches are bad or I have the best church out there, but there were personal reasons why I felt led to plant this church. And that story can be told and retold and told and retold all across our county over the hundreds of years that people have lived here where various churches were started for various reasons, some good reasons and some not so good reasons. So what we're going to see in this passage today is that two things in church life are absolutely certain until Jesus Christ comes back. Number one, disagreements. There will be disagreements, some legitimate, some not so legitimate, some necessary and good, some not so good, some doctrinal, some moral, and some just based on personality. So there will always be differences and disagreements in the church. And yet at the same time, the good news is, is that there will be continued gospel advancement in spite of disagreements among God's people. When Christ said, I'll build my church, guess what? He meant it. And our inability to get along is not going to stop the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to build his church. Now, initially, we might think of disagreements as, oh, they're always hinder the gospel. If, we, if there's any disagreement, the, the kingdom is going to shrink. Gospel advancement is going to screech to a halt or at least be incredibly slow. But in this particular event, which we're going to look at, the disagreement that took place between Paul and Barnabas served to advance the kingdom of God, even though it was painful and it was hurtful. So disagreements are inevitable, and yet gospel advancement is going to continue. Now, we might think about this, before I read the text for you, we might think about this on, on a different level for a moment, whereby disagreement sometimes actually expands the human race, for example. So I have five children. They're all adults now, and I love all of them to death. They're great kids. I'm super blessed to be the father of these five wonderful young adults. Uh, 
But when they started to get closer to their adult years, and they wouldn't be offended by me saying this because some of them are in the room, there's a strange dynamic that starts to take place. You're like, I love my kids. I love them a lot. But you know what? It's time to start moving out of the nest. And on their end, it's like, we don't really want to hear your opinion anymore, dad. So there's this dynamic that takes place. There's this period of tension. And it can be difficult on parents and children as they're sorting this out, where you're starting to feel, you know, the Bible says, leave and cleave. Start your own household. Time to, time to move out. And that might take place at 18. It might take place at 25 or whatnot. But those of you that are parents of young adults, you probably live in that tension. Like it's time to sort of move out. And the kids get less interested in being under your authority. And, and it can cause some, some angst and maybe some sleepless nights and some tension. But that's the way life works. And it's a good thing. In order for new households to start, there has to be sort of a push and a pull. Otherwise, everyone would still be living at home, right? And in the same way, sometimes there's, there's tension in the Christian church. And some of that tension is illegitimate. Again, it might be because of doctrinal heresy, but other times it's based on personality. Or it's based upon the fact that you've outgrown the church, or the church has outgrown you, or you have a different opinion on ministry strategy, or who should serve where, or where you should go, and, and on and on and on. And you might think, well, this is such a bad thing, but in fact, God will use that to scatter the seeds of the gospel farther and farther abroad. So throughout church history, disagreements, even sharp, have served to advance the gospel. How? How is this possible? Well, let's first of all look at the disagreement that took place, which illustrates that disagreements are inevitable. So join me in Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. Keep in mind, as we read this, this is sort of the first major conflict between Christian evangelists. Up till now, we've become acclimatized to disputes between Christians and non-Christians. The circumcision party, Jew, Jewish uh, Pharisees, pagans, conflicts between them and the Christians, and there's been lots of that, shipwrecks and jail time and all this sort of thing. But here we have a genuine bona fide sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And here's what the word of God says about that. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So this is like, well, this is good. You know, they, they wanted to return to places they'd plant churches, check in on them. About two or three years had passed since they'd visited some of these locations and they wanted to go back to make sure that everyone was on the straight and narrow and the churches were well provided for and whatever their objectives might, might have been, but they were all good. But then there's a dispute. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Now, this Mark, John Mark, is, from the best of our knowledge, the man that would later write the first canonical book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. But at this point, several years before that, Paul did not have a high view of this individual. And he objected to the suggestion that John Mark would be their ministry associate. It says in verse 38, 
But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So in a previous ministry experience, for whatever reason, Mark had cut his ministry short or moved off. And Paul thought maybe that was a bit of a character issue. Maybe he thought of him as being a little bit immature, lacking in the area of courage or perseverance. And Paul's a pretty dogmatic thinker. He's like, I don't want a guy like that on this trip. This is, this is not the kind of guy. There's, the chemistry's off. I, maybe I'm questioning his, his maturity or whatnot, and, and I don't want him to come. But then it goes on to say, and there also arose a sharp disagreement. Now, how sharp? So that they separated from each other. That's pretty sharp. This is a bona fide difference of opinion that was they were unable to reconcile. So Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches, meaning that fruit was still born even in spite of this Disagreement. Now, one might look back on the situation through the lens of history and say Barnabas was right. Because John Mark clearly had a lot of potential going on to write the Gospel of Mark. But in the moment, one could also argue, well, Paul was right. Because maybe John Mark wasn't quite ready for it or needed a little more time to mature. Now, there's several things that we can draw by way of observation from this text. Here's the first one that I think is is um, reflected elsewhere in the word of God that I find encouraging. And it's, it's the idea that the Bible doesn't avoid real life challenges. The Bible's not sprayed with gloss and wax. The Bible presents us with the highs and the lows of life in the here and now. Outside of the church, as we do battle with the devil, with demonic attack, with heretics, with pagans, and it also records real-life, bona fide challenges and difficulties that have occurred historically among God's people. So it's never like, hey, become a Christian. Your problems are going to be solved. Go to church. Everyone's all going to get along, skipping through the hallways, smiling and remembering each other's names and you know, never forgetting each other in prayer and always getting along and always agreeing. That's not life in the church. And if you're the sort that's apt to cut and run from the church every time there's a little ruffling of feathers, it's not going to be too long before there's no church for you to go to. Because there always will be and have been real life challenges and conflicts in Christian relationships. Christian relationships can be tense. Have you ever experienced that? They can be painful. They can be challenging. When I chat with other Christians, I, I appreciate it when the person doesn't try to present all their pluses without their minuses. It's good to, in a, in a real life relationship to say, you know, here's my strengths, here's my weaknesses, and I'll share my strengths and my weaknesses. This is real life because we know it's true. We all have highs and lows. We all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have blind spots, and we've all experienced victories in Christ. That, that's life in the church. And you're always suspicious when you meet someone that's, everything's just great. Everything's wonderful. God bless you, Pastor. I had a perfect week in Jesus. That's not real life. 
Here are two absolute dynamic men of God who had been used dramatically by God to lead people to Christ, who were sold out to Jesus Christ, but they sharply disagreed. Now, I don't know how old these guys were at the time, but I've, I've been doing ministry longer, much longer than they were doing ministry at this time. And I can tell you in 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've, I've been involved in hundreds of disputes, hundreds, not dozens, hundreds of disputes of various degrees. And a very small number of them are doctrinal in nature. A lot of it is personality. It's different views on ministry. It's Oftentimes, they're also moral issues, but they're not always doctrinal, moral, breaches of authority. Some of them are genuine differences of opinion on how churches are to operate or how things are to be administered in the life of the Christian church. And we might at times have this quaint notion, oh, wouldn't it be good to find a conflict-free church? where everyone gets along. Well, in order for that to happen, what you have to do is you have to have a church filled with dead people. Because as soon as you open your mouth and you start talking and dialoguing and making decisions and sitting on teams and doing ministry together, guess what happens? Conflict. Those of you that are married know this. You might say, I love my spouse to death. And then I would like to kill them. Like, how is that possible that you can say both of those things of the same person? Human nature. Sometimes there's conflicts. And we rub each other the wrong way. So throughout Acts, lots of conflicts between Christians and non-Christians. That's common. But guess what? It also happens between Christians. What is noteworthy about this conflict is that neither man in the biblical text is assigned blame. Neither one. God doesn't say, Paul, you were right. Barnabas, you were wrong. Barnabas, you were right. Paul, you were wrong. They're not assigned blame. Why? Because it wasn't about doctrinal compromise. There are some denominations in the world that we separate from, we stay clear of because they're part of the visible church. But we don't actually consider them part of the invisible church. They're not actually true Christians because they may have rejected the triunity of God. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, the second coming of Christ, whatever it might be, they're filled with doctrinal compromise. But not here. It wasn't doctrinal compromise. It wasn't some moral breach. It wasn't like the one guy discovered the other guy committing the sin of fornication. It wasn't a rebellion against authority. It wasn't that Paul had authority over Barnabas or Barnabas had authority over Paul and they'd violated those spheres of God-given authority. It wasn't that. It wasn't that they were trying to sow seeds of discord in ministry to hinder the gospel for personal advancement. Rather, these were two peers that disagreed on who their quote-unquote associate pastor was going to be. It was effectively a strategy question, a wisdom issue, a discernment issue. So we need to be clear when we read passages like this, it would be wrong-headed for us to go and say, well, you know, all conflicts then are justified. That's what we learned in church today. No, not all conflicts are justified. There are some, some conflicts that are sinful in nature. Again, if they're doctrinal, if they 
deal with a moral or authoritative breach, there's at least one party that, that bears the blame. And they need to be disciplined and they need to repent. But in this particular situation, it's of a different nature. So suppose, for example, you decided you wanted to do more evangelism. And you said, well, maybe you're working with a friend and you work well together. And you say, well, I think we should go to the East. And he's like, no, I want to go to the West. And you, you feud and disagree. And one goes to the East and one goes to the West. Is that a loss? Well, it might be a loss of friendship, but it could be a win for the kingdom of God. Or a couple church planters, they want to work together as a team. And one says, I want to plant in city X. And the other says, city Y. And they can't agree. So they plant in two different places. Or you're you're new to Windsor, Essex County. And you're like, should I go to Harvest or another faithful church? You need to make that decision. It's a wisdom issue. Or I'm going to homeschool my kids. Or I'm going to Christian school my kids. These are issues that Christians can genuinely have differences of opinion on but they're not doctrinal, they're not moral, they're not a violation of authority, they're not a reflection that you have a terrible character or the other person has a terrible character. So hopefully we can learn to agree to disagree at times when it's not moral or authoritative or doctrinal in nature. Second thing that I think is worth drawing out of the text is in relationship to their two personalities and are two different approaches. Now, when we look at the broader corpus of scripture, we get a pretty good, I think most of you who have studied the Bible for a while probably have a mental picture of what Paul's personality was more or less like. And you probably have a bit of a mental picture of what Barnabas's personality was like. And they're different. So Paul is, I would say, more dogmatic than Barnabas is by nature. Barnabas is more encouraging in nature than Paul was. So if you were to apply this, let's say, to church eldership, and they were sitting on a council deliberating, Paul probably would have been the guy that would have excelled in issues of oversight, doctrinal disputes. Barnabas knew his Bible, but he was more shepherding, more pastoral in nature, one one could say. And depending on your personality, if you're around a church leader, you might gravitate to more of a compassionate leader, or you may gravitate to more of a categorical leader. But the problem arises when we say, well, this person is more like Jesus. This guy's more hardcore in his doctrine, or this guy's more shepherding and pastoral. And you know, Jesus was very loving. And you're like, yeah, but Jesus was a lot about truth. And we start to assume that one person is somehow more spiritual than the other, that the the shepherd in the church is more spiritual than the theologian or the theologian is more spiritual than, than the shepherd. Now, as I've thought about my own life and personality over the years, I must admit that in some respects, I'd love to be the perfect balance of everything. You know, the perfect balance, just like Jesus, right? But as you grow older, you realize, you know what? There's just some things I'm, I'm just not very good at. God has given me some strengths and then I have some weaknesses and I I may try to accommodate for those weaknesses. I may try to hide them. I may not try to put them on display, but I'm just not bent in that direction. So to my own shame or to my own benefit, depending on how you want to frame it, I would probably be a little more like Paul. So if you're having an issue in your life, catastrophe in your life, and you need a shoulder to cry on, 
you might want to start by calling another elder. Because as much as I, I have a heart for people, it's not like I get up in the morning and think, I just want to shepherd people. I, I just tend to get up in the morning and think, where are the errors? I want to hunt them down. Where's the truth to be found? It's not even a choice. It's just how God has wired me. And there's other people that are wired differently than I am. And that's okay. So here we have Paul concerned about qualifications. What's this guy's character like? What's his competency like? What's his track record like? And I can kind of relate to that. I think about these things. Barnabas is thinking, yeah, but what about his potential? I wonder what I, where I can take this guy. So both of these sorts of leaders, of course, are a huge blessing to every Christian church. And wise leadership will include both types of personalities and as many levels of leadership as it can. Because we benefit from both sorts of people. One is not better than the other, but the temptation is to conflict. The temptation is to disagree. The temptation is to judge if that person isn't like you, well, they're, they, they have character flaws, they're too dogmatic, or this person's too soft. And I think that's an error that we often make because we tend to project our personalities, our gift sets upon others as like the prototypical Christian. If you want to really be a Christian, you need to be like me. And that's arrogance. And that's an error. And it's also a failure to acknowledge that even in the word of God, God uses very different personalities. So strive for balance, strive to be, to grow in your areas of weakness, but know this, you are you. And God has uniquely wired you in a certain way and you need to harness those abilities to accelerate in ministry. By the way, as an aside, the exact same principle applies to marriage. The exact same principle applies to marriage. This is why opposites usually attract and then get themselves into conflict because they appreciate the otherness of the other, but over time grow irritated by it because of pride, because they want the person to be like them. And ideally in the marriage relationship, just like in every relationship, what we need to do is to, yes, rub off on one another, but also learn to benefit from the differences that the other person brings into our, into our marriages or into our relationships. I can tell you, I haven't been married for many, many years to my own wife, who's radically different than me, apart from the fact that she's a human being <laughs> and is a Christian. She's very, very different than me. I benefit from that every single day. And this is the beauty. This is the mystery of marriage, not to mention the fact that we happen to be male and female, which is also a difference. And it's a God intended difference, but there's a lifelong journey of discovery that is naturally presented to us when a man marries a woman or a woman marries a man, because you'll never figure the other person out. My dad, who has virtually no, shall we say, political correctness in his system, sent me a funny meme this week. I'm going to share it with you. I need you to promise me you're not going to get offended. Ladies, if you have any inclination this morning to get offended, just put your fingers in your ears, okay? So I see a few fingers going in. 
but I know you got one out because you want to hear it. So he sent me a picture, and the picture was a a book, and the book said, um, everything you need to know about women, like volume one of 100. Everything you need to know about men. It's just a tiny little thin (laughs) book with hardly anything in it, right? And we, we laugh at that because we know that in general, men tend to be rather simple beings, and women tend to be slightly more complex than we are. And that can lead to conflict, or it can be part of the beautiful, ongoing journey of discovering the other. The choice is yours as to how you're going to unpack all that. So then we need to ask the question, well, when is division justified? Here it was justified because they had a legitimate difference of opinion on who their associate should be. But there are, there are other times when permanent division is actually justified. And as I mentioned already, one of those is when core doctrine is tampered with. So I'm a fan of what happened in the Reformation because the Roman church compromised the gospel. That's a fact. They were teaching that you could get into heaven through indulgences, paying off the priest to pray you out of purgatory and all these sorts of things. Sorry to offend you if you're still a Catholic, but that's heresy. And they looked at the word of God and they realized that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you can't agree on that, you're not going to heaven. So if you're trusting in your baptismal ceremony, your indulgences, your good works compared to other people, you will go into a Christless eternity because you're basically saying, I can earn my way into heaven. And if churches teach something like that, that's cause for division. First, we want to try to bring correction. And the early reformers sought to bring correction because they were largely Catholic priests. They wanted to bring reformation to the Roman church, the Western church. But having failed, various Protestant groups rose up. And throughout time, the church is purified when heresy is dealt with head on. It has to be, has to be dealt with head on. And then of course, division is necessary when there's unrepentant immorality in the church. So when men are starting to be married to men or women to women or fornication is being permitted or blasphemy is being permitted, we don't say, well, judge not unless she be judged. We lean into the Bible. We say, no, this is cause for church discipline. There has to be reform here. There has to be repentance. And if you don't repent, there's going to be division in the life of the church. So these are, of course, we can have differences of opinion on certain ethical applications. You know, is war ever justified? Is it not justified? People have differences, good people have differences of opinion on that. But there there should be no differences of opinion surrounding maleness and femaleness, surrounding the nature of marriage. There should be no differences of opinion. I have a different opinion about authority in the church. No, Christ is the head of his church. That's a cardinal doctrine. There's no differences of opinion on that allowed. But that said, disputes over personality and ministry strategy are to be expected. Now, in spite of all of this, this division and going two different ways, here's what's very encouraging. Gospel advancement's inevitable. Barnabas goes on to preach 
to his audience with Mark at his side. Paul goes on to preach it to his audience with Silas and then yet another young apprentice, Timothy, at his side. And here we see the expansion of ministry. And we also see a choice apostle make an incredible sacrifice for the cause of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let me read it. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. So again, two or three years earlier, they'd gone and evangelized. This is a, a man then that would have been saved for maybe two or three years at the time. We're told a little bit about his uh, parentage. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of, so he was above reproach, by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So this Unlike uh, John Mark, it wasn't like Paul couldn't work with anybody. He wanted to disciple young men. He was taken by Timothy. He thought, this is, this is a quality guy. So he took him, and then this is very strange at first read in light of what we read previously about the Jerusalem council and circumcision and all that, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles. What decisions? Remember what decisions? The ones that said you don't have to be circumcised as a Gentile to be part of the new covenant community. So they, they circumcision Tim, circumcised Timothy and then they're delivering the decrees by the Jerusalem council that says you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. So we got to sort this one out. They delivered to them observance, the discussions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And then verse five, so the churches were strengthened in the faith in spite of the division, in spite of the sharp disagreement, in spite of the breach in relationship. Paul goes one way, Barnabas goes another, but it says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily, not every 10 years. Every single day, people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's talk about Timothy's role and heritage. So he's obviously a male. His mother is Jewish. This is really important because Jewishness is determined by your mother's side, your maternal side, not by your paternal side. Because obviously, in certain circumstances, it's one could question your um, who your father was. But it's pretty obvious the woman that is growing and then delivers you, it's kind of hard to deny who your mother is. So Jewishness was determined through or reckoned through your mother's side. And when Paul and Barnabas, or here Paul and Silas, went into these Gentile territories to preach the gospel, you might think, well, the first people they met were Greeks. Not really. They would typically go to the synagogue and so even these churches planted in Gentile areas, oftentimes the core group, the launch teams, what we might call it in the modern era, were Jewish converts to Christianity. So the Jews had spread around. There was a diaspora, we could call it. There was Jews all over Asia Minor, Northern Africa, even into Asia a little ways. And when the, the apostles would go in or disciples would go in, they would beeline for people that spoke their language and knew their culture. There's just a natural connection there. And they would often start these churches by leading Jewish people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So 
In order to do that, keep in mind, they're not just preachers, they're not local church pastors. They're not guys that, oh, come and pastor our church. Just get up and preach a sermon every week. And if there's 50 people now and there's still 50 people in 20 years, oh, well, you're preaching faithful sermons. It wasn't that. These were missionaries. These were guys that actually thought about, hmm, how do we reach lost people for Christ? How do we actually strategically position ourselves for maximum effectiveness in ministry? Imagine if all churches did that today. How do we actually position ourselves for maximum ministry for Christ? And Paul was aware that since Timothy was Jewish, but hadn't been circumcised to his potential Jewish converts, he would have been considered apostate and they would have wanted to listen to him. So I'm not sure how the conversation ensued, but somehow Timothy agrees for no other reason than to open ministry doors. You ready for this, guys? To as an adult, not trying to be crude, but you got to think about this, as an adult in a pre-anesthetic culture to be circumcised. And I assume you know what that is. When he gets to heaven, I would assume he's going to have a massive crown available to him for this sacrifice he made for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of us, weak as we are, used to comfort. It's like, what's your, what kind of sacrifices have you made for Jesus lately? Well, you know what? I post a Bible verse and someone blocked me on Facebook. Somebody called me a name. My neighbor won't talk to me anymore. I wasn't invited to the birthday party. I'm suffering for Jesus. This guy had part of his genitals cut off for Christ, an optional surgery. Minor though it might've been, it's a two to three week recovery. So this is an impressive person to say the least. And he does it for one simple reason, not to communicate that you have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Because the council had made that clear and they're delivering the decrees. It's not necessary. But he didn't want anything to stand in the way of walking through the open doors of ministry that God had put in his path. You know, young Jewish boys, they typically would be circumcised at around eight days of age. I heard a medical doctor say one time that that's also the time when the vitamin K in the blood is the highest and helps with clotting or something like that. I really haven't researched that, but I thought, hmm, part of the genius of God's plans. They circumcised babies before it was painful when there was the ability to clot and whatnot. But again, this, this was an adult man. And yet he was willing to sacrifice all of this for the sake of ministry. Now, the irony is, is that having recovered from his circumcision, he then is out with Paul delivering letters to Gentiles saying, hey, by the way, you don't have to be circumcised to be part of the new covenant. So he wasn't even going, he wasn't even making a sacrifice, think about this, that he was then expecting his converts to make, which kind of adds to the awe of how in love this man was with lost people and what he was willing to do for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think at this point in time, if you're not already thinking this way, the question all of us should be mulling over is, what have I sacrificed for Christ? 
And am I the kind of person that's willing to go out of my way, step out of my comfort zone, make changes to my lifestyle in order to win people to Jesus? What's awesome is that the churches are being strengthened and people are being uh, added to their numbers daily. Usually in the modern era, if a church experiences too much, too many conversions, people start thinking, oh, they must be compromised. Because after all, all faithful churches are dying, right? All faith. If you're going to be a faithful church, expect a depletion in numbers year after year, year after year. We make these excuses in our minds. But an actual fact is because most of our churches are just holy huddles. Same people coming week after week, hiding in their churches, terrified of the world, just wanting a little bit of a break from the tyranny. Well, there's something to be said for that, gathering, encouraging, building up, equipping. But there's also something to be said for being missionary-minded when we step outside these doors think, have I established my life in such a way that by all means possible, I might win as many people as possible for Christ? So this is a bit of a, I think, a, maybe a rebuke for some of us and maybe just an encouraging challenge for the rest of us that sacrificing for Christ and the sake of the gospel and being strategic, be like, oh, you're a pragmatist. Oh, there's something wrong with pragmatics. There's something wrong with thinking about what works and doesn't work. There's, there's something wrong with saying, hey, why don't I go and... Um, actually talk to lost people. Maybe I should learn to speak their language. Maybe I should be winsome in the way I communicate with them. See, sometimes we have this such a, we take the doctrine of God's sovereignty and we, we, we say, you know, God is sovereign over salvation. We think, well, then it's all, it's all him. We'll just kind of do our thing regardless of whether people are coming to faith in Christ. It's just, it's just God's, it's God's determinative will that's, that's in play. Clearly he doesn't want us to grow. Well, we don't know how many people are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but you know what I like to think? I'd like to think that if we're faithful to Christ, people come to faith every single day through our ministry. Think about this. This is a pretty small church. Now, by Canadian standards, you might think, well, if we compare it to other churches, it's a big church. It's not a big church. Okay, the book of Acts, they baptized 3,000 people in one day. We might baptize 150 people a year or something like that. This is a small church. But there are hundreds of people that go here. And each of you has all sorts of connections. You, you might have connections into the thousands. People you know as acquaintances or through business or your social media accounts or whatever. Think of the exponential potential that even our little church here, Windsor, Ontario has. To win our entire province to Christ. Through, this, through sacrifice through the raw preaching of the gospel, through living large for Jesus, putting our faith on display. But you know what? It's not going to happen if we're Sunday morning only Christians. And then we go out there and we just live in fear and terror of all the bad people. Okay, we were one of them at one point too. Remember that? So let's, let's maybe be challenged to, th to think a little more strategically about gospel evangelism and to go where the people are and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ straight up. Obviously, you want to be tactful and learn all the techniques. But frankly, sometimes I think we're too concerned about techniques. Hey, can you teach me an evangelism course? Yeah, here's your evangelism course. Go out and have a conversation with someone. 
and then evaluate how that conversation went afterwards and have another conversation with another person. And over time, you'll figure it out. That's your evangelism course. So I want to leave you with four take-homes. The first one is, be a realist. If you're going to be part of the Christian church long-term, be a realist. Disputes will happen. Disagreements will happen. Just expect it. Don't let it rattle your cage too much. There's going to be differences of opinion. It's going to happen. So let's take off our rose-colored glasses and our view that the church is perfect. It's my refuge. And just realize there's going to be challenges in the life of the church. It shouldn't really surprise us. Secondly, differentiate between substantive differences and differences of opinion. Now, how, how do you do that? Well, what, the best advice is read and study your Bible. What you'll discover is that over time, there are certain things in the Bible that are black and white, absolutely clear. There's absolutely no way to deny them. To deny them is to be, either be a heretic or at least preach false doctrine. And then there are other things you may have an opinion on. You start to thumb through the word of God and you're like, actually, that's not there. Or maybe it's not as clear as I thought. So I'll give you an illustration from my own life. So way, way back in the 1970s and early 80s, I was a little boy. I was raised in a gospel preaching church, but it was pretty strict. And there were many things you were told to do and not do. And little eight-year-old Aaron didn't necessarily know okay, well, if I'm being told I can't do this, is that actually in the Bible? Or is that a matter of the leader's opinion? And over time, so for, I'll give you a couple examples. So we went to church, we always wore suits. We always wore suits and ties and white shirts. Always, all the guys, not the girls, but guys wore suits and ties, women wore dresses. And if you were to walk up to little eight-year-old Aaron and say, little eight-year-old Aaron, what is the proper way to dress for church? I would say, well, you have to wear a suit and tie. And I'm not sure I was thinking about whether it was in the Bible or not. It was just, that's what you did at church. It wasn't until I was in Bible college studying church history. And I discovered that when Constantine was converted, he started attending unannounced Christian churches. And Christians were like, the emperor might show up anytime. So people started dressing up for church but it's not in the Bible. If you want to dress up for church, have at it. But the Bible doesn't say you got to dress in a certain way for church. In fact, early Christians typically would have one outfit. They wore it on Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturday. There were no suits and ties and then your daily work attire. It's all the same. But if you were to ask little eight-year-old Aaron, I'm not sure I would have had the wisdom to differentiate between opinion and biblical substance. Or probably up to the time I was almost 18, I thought dancing was a sin. Because that's what I was taught. Dancing's a sin. Christians don't dance. Now, certain kinds of dancing, if they're erotic, sensual, attention-seeking, well, we could say they're sinful. But we can't say dancing is a sin. It's not in the Bible. David danced, other people danced. But if you've been told that over and over and over again from the time you're a little boy, you you just think it's a sin. You actually feel it's a sin. It's like, I just feel it's sinful. I don't know why. Well, find me the verse. I can't find it, but I'm pretty sure it is. And over time, the word of God refines you and helps you to differentiate between substantive disagreement and matters of opinion. I couldn't really care less if you dance or not. 
If you're like, I don't dance, I still think it's not appropriate. Fine, don't care. Don't talk to me about it afterwards. Don't send me a Facebook message. Don't send me an email. I won't respond. Okay, that's my non-Barnabas side speaking. Okay. But I can, I'm totally fine if that's something that you have a difference of opinion on. I just don't care. So what we have to differentiate between is, is it a substantive difference or is it a difference of opinion? Third, great reminder, God uses personality. We're not all the same. This is not the Borg. We're actually individuals. Throughout the word of God, we have different personalities. David's personality is unique and distinct to him. We know a lot about his personality because of his psalms, very emotional, very expressive. You get a different sense of what Daniel's personality might be like. There was a different personality and gift set between Aaron and his brother Moses in terms of speaking and whatnot. Hey, we're not all the same. Thank God for that. And at times that's going to cause conflict, but we should also have a growing appreciation for it. And then finally, in keeping with Jesus' high priestly prayer, we should strive for unity wherever possible. And unity is forged in love. Some of you might say, well, I'm a very loving person. Actually, we should all be loving people. We may express our love differently. Some people like to give hugs. Some people high five. Some people just like to give you a wink. Some people might give a verbal encouragement. Some might give you a gift as a way of expressing that. We should all be loving people. And we should strive for love among the brethren. And we could say the cistern. We should strive for love in the Christian church and unity in Christ, but at the same time, be aware that we're not always going to be on the same page. And guess what? That's okay. And God can even use our differences to continue to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ.